This morning we have the privilege of hearing the Word of God from 1 Samuel chapters 9 through 12 as we continue this series through 1 Samuel. And then next Sunday, uh, Tom will bring to us a message on the incarnation from Isaiah chapter 7 and 9. And so we'll be looking forward to that. Uh, if you have one of our Red Bibles, it's page 233. Uh, 233 is where we'll start reading, actually. We're not going to read four chapters this morning. I hope you read them this week, but if you didn't, God may still grant you some blessing today. Uh, we'll see. Uh, so we're going to start reading at uh, 1 Samuel 11 in verse 12, and we're going to read through the end and, and into chapter 12 as well. Uh, so uh, would you stand with me? as we honor the reading of God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. Beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12. The context is that the people have asked for a king. Samuel has appointed them a king, and now Saul, their first king, has demonstrated his abilities as a leader. It tells us in verse 12, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety." 
And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Father, would you honor the reading and the proclamation of your word with the powerful presence and working of your Holy Spirit? You know what each of us need to hear, and I pray that it may be your good pleasure to bless us with encouragement, with strengthening of faith, with conviction, with repentance, with whatever we need from you as we give attention to what you have spoken. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've made a terrible mistake. I can imagine that was the reaction of the people of Israel as they stood there that day at Gilgal, and they saw this prophet Samuel in giving them his farewell address, pray and bring down a thunderstorm from heaven in the middle of the dry season, the wheat harvest, May to June when rain doesn't normally fall. I can imagine the landowners looking with horror across the wheat fields and seeing the rain pelting their crops and the wind blowing them violently and coming to the realization that this God we rejected when we asked for a king could very easily annihilate our livelihood. I can also imagine that at least the older ones among them that day would have remembered another occasion when Samuel prayed and a thunderstorm arose as they thought back to the day when a much younger Samuel, 
uh, had gathered the people at Mizpah, and the Philistines had come with a surprise attack. And Samuel, who was never a military leader, offered up a sacrifice to God and prayed, and the Lord sent thunder from heaven and sent the Philistines into such confusion that the Israelites routed them easily. And I can imagine them thinking, why did we ever assume that a strong man, warrior, king would be able to give us better protection than the Lord's prophet? Than the man who can pray and move the powers of heaven. And they suddenly realized what a mistake they had made. And they began to look down a very dark tunnel at a future in which the wrath of God may very well fall upon them. And he might annihilate them completely. And so they call out to Samuel in verse 19 of what we just read. Pray for your servants to the Lord that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel's response may have just taken them by surprise in verse 20. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Fear not. God is still for you. Do not despair. Do not uh, turn away from God. Do not try to hide yourself from Him. His love is still fixed upon you. He still intends to bless you. He still intends to do good for you. He still wants you to seek to obey Him and to walk with Him. And as Samuel extends these encouraging words to the people, you come to the heart of what these four chapters are about when you get to verse 22. If you want to see what are 1 Samuel 9 through 12 about, it's 12:22, where Samuel tells the people, For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. You see, bound up in this one verse, you have the idea of election. God has chosen Israel to be His people, and because He has chosen them, His name, His glory is now bound up with their future. And God's commitment to Israel, therefore, is is the, the same commitment He now has to His own name. And because God will not waver in exalting His own name, He will therefore not waver in His intention to do good to Israel. And I think we can personalize that verse and summarize it into a doctrine this morning that I'm going to put on the screen for you that summarizes the point of this message today. It's despite your failures, the God who chose you will never be deterred from displaying His glory by blessing you. Despite your failures, the God who chose you will never be deterred from displaying His glory by blessing you. These are the ways of our God, and they are wonderful. God knows we need to hear this message because we all have a track record of failures. And we all have a tendency to carry those around with us. Now, sometimes you have to carry the consequences of sin around with you that that may be unavoidable, but we, we tend to carry the guilt as well. And maybe there are some in here who are still carrying guilt from sins that that have been committed years ago. 
Maybe you uh, carry on those consequences, and as a result, you're reminded daily of a mistake you made in the past. Maybe you entered into a hasty marriage, and it's made your life difficult. Maybe you spoke on one occasion to someone you love with unguarded words that caused damage to that relationship. Maybe you gave yourself up during one night of passion and changed your life forever. Maybe you developed an addiction that you still struggle with to this day, trying to deaden the pain that you had been facing. Or maybe you committed a sin yesterday, and it's left you wondering, where do I stand with God now? It's my joy to proclaim to you, whatever your situation may be, any of those or anywhere in between, that if you are in Christ, holding to Him by faith, the love of God for you is undeterred. Because the glory of God is wrapped up in blessing you. That is what God proclaims to Israel. That is what He's proclaiming to us as well. In these four chapters, chapters 9 through 12, we have the aftermath of what comes from chapter 8. In chapter 8, Israel had asked for a king. They had asked Samuel to appoint for us a king, and they had a, a, an excuse laid out for why they wanted a king. But if you look closely, you can see the reason they wanted a king was because they didn't want to have to trust the Lord anymore. They wanted a man they could trust in to give them security. And so this very wicked act of asking for a king to make them like all the nations God answers and he gives them a king. And in three stages, he gives them their first king, who is Saul of Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. And if you want to, to break down these four ch uh, chapters into sections, uh, you have Saul coming to the throne in three stages. Uh, the first stage is in chapter 9, 1, uh, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 16. So 9, 1 to 10, 16 is the story about Saul's private anointing as king. He's privately anointed by Samuel. Then in 1017 through 27, the rest of the chapter, Saul is publicly proclaimed as king. And then in chapter 11, Saul demonstrates his leadership, and his, his leadership as king is proven during a time of crisis. And then you come to chapter 12, which we just read, which is Samuel's farewell address to the people. So if you want to think of the passage in those four sections, we're going to be looking at verses from each one of them this morning. But as we do, we're going to be noting God's undeterred love for His people and the multiple ways that it is shown and how it may encourage us uh, who deal with our own failures as well. And so I want to show three ways from this passage that God's undeterred love for, for His people is demonstrated. First, God's love for His children is shown through providence. God's love for His children is shown through providence. Now, providence is a theological term uh, that has recently been defined in a book by John Piper, simply by the title Providence, a very good short definition. It is God's purposeful sovereignty. God's purposeful sovereignty is what we mean when we say providence. Uh, God is not only in control of what unfolds, of every molecule that moves in this universe. He's not only in control of it, but He's directing it to His appointed ends in wisdom. So it's, it's not just bare sovereignty or control, it is purposeful sovereignty or control. 
And I want you to see how the events that lead up to Saul becoming king are providentially arranged, and they have an explicit purpose, or actually purposes that are laid out. So I want to begin by noting what are the purposes for which God raises up Saul to be king. And for this, you got to go back to chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 15 to 17. God reveals to Samuel, before he ever meets Saul, two purposes for which Saul is going to be raised up as king. In verses 15 and 16, we'll see the first one. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, the Israelites had lived at relative peace with the Philistines during Samuel's time, but apparently from this verse, it seems that the Philistines continued to pose a threat, maybe an economic threat, maybe the, the Philistines were building up uh, preparations so that it was only a matter of time, the Israelites knew, before they would go to war with them again. And God here declares, I'm raising up this man that you are about to meet to be the man who will deliver my people from their enemies. So one purpose is to deliver Israel. Even though they have sinfully rejected God and asking for a king, God nevertheless says, I have seen them and I have heard their cry and I intend to deliver them. And then the second purpose for which God is going to raise up Saul is in verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. To restrain Israel is the second purpose. To defend Israel from enemies is the first. To restrain Israel is the second. Now, when you see that word restrain, you should think immediately of the end of the book of Judges, because this is the time period out of which Israel is now coming. And at the end of the book of Judges, we read several times this refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so the lack of any real authority in Israel is what led to a situation of moral relativism, where everyone's pursuing his own way, doing his own thing, and the book of Judges contains some horrifying stories about what was being done in Israel. And so God is telling Samuel, I'm raising up this king to restrain that sinful impulse and to bring order to the nation of Israel. So God has two purposes, both for protection and for ordering his people, and that is why he's now bringing Saul to Samuel. And it's interesting in verse 16 we read that God had said to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin. It's interesting because if you read the account itself, if you go back and read uh, chapter 9 up to this point, the way Saul comes to Samuel, it reads like a string of random events. Uh, if you go back and read it, what, what happened? Well, Saul's father, Kish, had some donkeys who got away. And so his father sent Saul and a servant on a mission to go find the lost donkeys. And so Saul and the servant, they search and they search, and they search, and they search, and they cannot find these donkeys. Finally, they get to the point where they uh, are in the land of Zuf. They're near the city of Ramah. 
And uh, Saul finally says, it's time for us to go home because at some point my father's going to worry more about us than the donkeys. And the servant says, well, isn't there a man of God who lives in this city? And Saul says, well, we don't have anything to give to the man of God. Look, our bread is gone. We've eaten up all our supplies. There's, there's no, no gift we can present. So at first, Saul tries to discourage the idea. But the servant persists, and he says, look, I just dug in my bag, and I found a fourth of a shekel of silver. We can give this to the man of God. And so they're heading up the hill to the city. And it just so happens they meet some young women coming out of the city to draw water at that time. And they say, is the seer here? Uh, the seer, the prophet, that is. And the, the women say, Actually, he is. He just came into town today. You remember Samuel would go on a circuit to judge the people, but he had just come back to Ramah that day, and they said to, the, to Saul and his servant, you better hurry, though, because at any moment he's going to head out to the high place for a feast today. But if you hurry right now, you may be able to catch him. And so Saul and the servant head into the city, and the first person they encounter is Samuel. Now, it reads like a series of random events, but we know better. We know that every donkey that escapes, every piece of silver that's left in a bag, every moment that young women choose to go out to a well, every um, moment that the prophet Samuel decides to be in the city and then eventually to leave, all of these things are timed perfectly by the providential hand of God, who is moving the pieces into place because he has told Samuel, I will send a man to you that you are to anoint as king. And, of course, God's providence doesn't end at that point. It continues. Samuel reveals to Saul that he's been chosen by God to be king, and, and he takes Saul up to the feast at the high place, and he puts Saul in a position of honor at the banquet among the most influential people in Israel. He gives Saul the honored portion at the meal. They come back into the city. They spend the night. And the next morning, Samuel sends them on their way. But before he does, he asks the servant to go on up ahead because he has a private message he wants to deliver to Saul. So look at chapter 10, verse 1, to see what Samuel said to Saul on this occasion. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And then he goes on to say, here will be the sign when you leave. And he names three distinct encounters that Saul is going to have with three groups of people. And here's exactly what's going to happen at each encounter. And of course, all the details, all the factors that go into those meetings uh, is sovereignly overseen by the Lord. All three come to pass exactly as foretold. And then Saul makes his way back to Gibeah. But God's providence doesn't end there. In the next section, in uh, chapter 10, 17 to 27, when Saul is publicly proclaimed as king, how does that actually happen? Well, Samuel uh, sometime later calls the people to Mizpah again. And uh, this is what we read when, um, when Samuel has them all together in verses uh, 20 to 21 of chapter 10. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near... And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now, what is a Lot? A Lot is some kind of a randomized process, similar to rolling dice. Something that we can't predict in advance how it's going to come out. 
So when Samuel gathers the people to proclaim Saul as king publicly, he doesn't say, here is the man I've anointed. He casts lots first over the 12 tribes. And among the 12 tribes, the the tribe of Benjamin is chosen by this randomized process of lots. Verse 21, he brought the tribe of Benjamin nearby its clan. So however many clans there were, uh, there's another lot that is cast. The clan of the Matrites was taken by lot. And then however many men of that clan there were, they cast another lot. And we read, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by lot. So by a randomized process of casting lots three times, Samuel lands on Saul as the publicly chosen king. God, in other words, is sovereign even over the casting of lots that lead to Saul's public proclamation as king. The author is showing us in these two chapters that God's providential rule extends to the intricate details of our lives. Every detail that you read is another touch of God's love for His people. And for us who are believers in Christ, this story and the way that the author draws out the providential elements in such a clear way over and over again, this story points my mind to Romans 8 verse 28, which is a verse we should all internalize. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things. And when Paul writes that, he doesn't mean God may be able to salvage something tolerable for you after you've messed it up so badly. That's not what that verse means. It means what it says. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God, in other words, wastes nothing, nothing in God's providential rule over this world is ever wasted. What that means for you if you are in Christ is that you have not been left with the option of despair. God has not given that option to you. He has promised you that your circumstances, whatever they may be, frustrating, annoying, even miserable, these are under His providential rule. They are for His glory, and they are for your good. And His love is demonstrated in every single event as it unfolds in your life. We may not see how. We may not know the mysteries of God's ways. There's so much we don't know. The book of Job will be preached here in a few weeks, and we'll see that very clearly taught. There's so much we don't know about what God is doing, but we do know what He has told us. And He has told us that He is sovereign over all things for His glory, for our good. And that means every moment of your life, indeed every moment of history, is charged with a significance that God is always doing something. And so take comfort in that, that God's love for His children is shown through providence. Second, God's love for His children is shown through the gift of His Spirit. God's love for His children is shown through the gift of His Spirit. When we first meet Saul, 
we get the impression he is an impressive man. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Saul is very impressive outwardly. But as you read the story, you don't get the same impression about his faith uh, or his abilities overall. Uh, Obviously, he's not a, a professional at catching lost donkeys. But in addition to that, he shows several times great hesitation to step into the office that God has chosen him for. Uh, So, for example, as you look at his encounter with Samuel, the first encounter they have, uh, in verse 20, this is what Samuel first says to Saul as he's he's, uh, inviting him up to the feast. He says, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And what Samuel's doing here is he's, first of all, showing Saul his prophet credentials. He's revealing to Saul information that Saul knows Samuel would have no access to unless God had told him. Samuel has no way of knowing that Saul's looking for lost donkeys. But he tells him without even being told, uh, because God has revealed it, your donkeys are fine, they've been found. So I want you to know I'm a prophet, and whatever I say is from God. Okay, we got that straight now. You are the one who fulfills the desire of Israel for a king. You are the one God has chosen. So here we have God basically telling Saul, through his prophet, you've been chosen to be the first king of Israel. And this is how Saul responds in verse 21. Saul answered, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? As if to say, Samuel, I I hear what you're saying. God, that is, I hear what you're saying, but really? And even in the way he says it, Saul's downplaying his family. His father is actually a very prominent man. He's a man of wealth. And and Saul's trying to downplay, trying to distance himself from what's been told to him from the Lord. He shows real hesitation to step into this office. And we see that again at the end of this section in chapter 10, verse 16, where when Saul does return home, his uncle asks him about where he's been, and he tells him about looking for the donkeys, about encountering Samuel, but he mentions nothing about the kingdom. And then in the next story, when Saul is publicly chosen as king by Lot, there's a very anticlimactic moment. If you go back to chapter 10, look at verse 21 again. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, And the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. That's an anticlimactic moment. Here's the Lord has chosen our king. It is Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, and we can't find him. Where did he go? Lord, are you sure it's Saul? Can you tell us again? And, and the Lord has to give them special revelation. Yes, 
He's, he's over there. You've got to go, go look for him. Saul is not confident at this point to step into this role. So he shows a real lack of faith, a real lack of ability. It's no wonder that in verse 27, uh, after he's publicly proclaimed as king, there are a number of people in Israel who still don't have confidence in him as a leader. But then in chapter 11, something changes. In chapter 11, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, comes up to the city of Jabesh-Gilead and he lays siege to it. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead, they present terms and they, they, they want to negotiate some kind of terms of surrender. And so they say, if you'll negotiate with us, we'll enter into a treaty with you. We'll become vassals to you. We'll pay tribute. You know, we just want to get out from under your thumb here. And Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, is a brutal man. And he tells them, I'll tell you what, here's my terms. Let me gouge out the right eye of every man in your city. That's my terms. Now, of course, if they had actually done that, it would have rendered the city completely defenseless. Because in that day, the custom was to hold a shield with your left hand that covered your left eye when you go into battle. Well, if you don't have a right eye, you're useless. On top of the fact, it would have been an utter humiliation of the city to have all of its men uh, lose their right eyes. And so the, the people of Jabesh-Gilead do not want to assent to these conditions. So they say, give us seven days. Give us seven days to send out for help if we can muster it. And if we can't, we will surrender to you unconditionally. And so Nahash, maybe he's arrogant, maybe he doesn't think that they can actually accomplish it in seven days, but he agrees. And so the city of Jabesh-Gilead sends out its messengers, and messengers come to an allied city of Gibeah in Benjamin, where Saul has actually gone back to his farming after being anointed king. And the message comes about the distress from Jabesh-Gilead, and there's such a lament among the people that Saul comes in from plowing with the oxen, and he hears what's going on. And when he does, he cuts up a yoke of oxen into pieces. He mutilates these oxen and sends the pieces out throughout Israel as a threat to say, if anyone does not come and follow Saul and Samuel, then this is what will happen to your oxen. And so he musters an army, a very large army. Now, there's actually a, a very interesting biblical echo that's happening right at this moment. In the book of Judges, the city of Gibeah is actually involved in another incident which involves mutilation and sending out body parts to call for battle. But what happened on that earlier occasion was a Levite and his concubine happened to be in the city of, Benjamin, of Gibeah of Benjamin. And through a series of events where the author of Judges portrays the city of Gibeah like a new Sodom, a sinful, wicked place, they end up sexually abusing this concubine and killing her. And so her husband takes her body and he cuts it up into pieces and he sends the pieces to the tribes of Israel to muster them for war against Gibeah and against Benjamin. Saul is performing an act here that seems to echo that event, but it's very different. He's not mutilating a human body, first of all, and he's not summoning an attack on Gibeah 
but he's summoning allies to Gibeah so that they may go attack a real enemy. Saul, in other words, is engaging in a noble act here, an act of strong, bold leadership. And it's as though the author is telling us that Saul is redeeming the past sins of Gibeah. This new leader is a new kind of man to lead into a new day. And so he, he rallies an army, and they, they come out in time, and he leads them to the city of Jabesh-Gilead, very skillfully leading them into battle against the Ammonites to complete victory. Look at chapter 11, verse 11. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. So here's my question. How did we go from Saul who hides himself among the baggage to Saul who leads his army to this kind of victory? The answer is in chapter 11, verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. It was the Spirit of God who made all the difference. The same Spirit, actually, who had come upon Saul previously. Remember when Samuel told him that these three things will happen when you go back home? One of those things, the third one, was that when he came back to Gibeah, he would see a group of prophets coming down, apparently playing musical instruments, singing prophetic words. And Samuel had said to Saul, when you see them, the Spirit of the Lord's going to rush upon you, and you're going to prophesy with them. And, and it happened just as foretold. Saul joined in the prophetic music. And so a saying went around, is Saul also among the prophets? As the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him to verify for him that he had indeed been anointed king by God. He'd been chosen. But on this occasion, he's now empowered by the rushing of the Spirit upon him in language that's reminiscent of the stories of Sam Samson, who with superhuman strength would deliver Israel from the Philistines. Here Saul receives that empowering from God to carry out the mission for which he has been chosen. God has equipped his king to lead his people. The same Spirit that came upon Saul on this occasion, is the Spirit who came upon Jesus at His baptism and empowered Jesus for His public ministry. And it is the same Spirit that the resurrected Christ poured out on His church on the day of Pentecost. And on that occasion, similar to what Saul experienced when he prophesied spontaneously uh, because the Spirit rushed upon him, the apostles spoke in tongues as the Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2. And Peter interprets that as a form of prophecy, a fulfillment of the, the prophetic word of Joel chapter 2. The same Spirit is now upon us if we are in Christ. But there's a big difference for us. Here's the difference between us and Saul. Saul received the Spirit under the Old Covenant. We who are in Christ have received the Spirit under the New. And what's the difference? The difference is that in the New Covenant era, the Spirit indwells God's people. God has taken up residence within us. 
There's no indication that God actually indwelled Saul, at least not in that way. Why would that be? It's because in the Old Covenant era, where did God dwell? He dwelled in the tabernacle or later in the temple. But the holy place was strictly off limits. The holy place was God's special reserved space where nothing unholy could ever enter. The problem of sin had still not yet been dealt with to the fullest, and thus God did not indwell His people directly. He dwelled among them in the tent and later the temple. And in the new covenant era, with Christ having come as the true temple of God, with the Spirit taking up residence in us, we are now in this era, if we are in Christ, God's very dwelling place. So if the love of God is shown to Saul and Israel through the rushing of the Spirit upon him, how much more is the love of God shown to us by making us the very place that he resides? If the Spirit of God dwells in you, it is a clear indication to you that you are not defined by your sin. You are defined by what God has made you to be and what He is making you. The indwelling Spirit is the foretaste, is the down payment on a future reality, but to be God's own dwelling place is a privilege beyond comprehension. So God shows His love for us in this way as well, the gift of His Spirit. And then third, God's love for His children is shown through His Word. God's love for His children is shown through His Word. Sometimes when Israel sins in the Old Testament, God's response to them is to stop speaking to them. And you actually did see this happen during the days of Eli. In the same book, chapter 3, verse 1, we read that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, as though God had decided to just stop talking because Israel had become so sinful and hard of hearing. That would represent God handing them over to their folly, letting them go their own way. And you could see how God would have every reason to do that again here. After they've asked for a king, after they've rejected him and put their trust in man, God would have a good justification to decide, I'm not going to speak to Israel anymore now. I'm going to let them follow this course until the natural consequences rough them up pretty well. But God doesn't do that. He speaks to the people. He continues to engage with them. He continues to make known His Word and to summon them to obedience to His Word, which is a sign of His love, a sign that He he wants them to continue to obey. He's, He's telling them, don't write off future obedience because of your past sin. And so He speaks to Saul, the new king, and He speaks to the people together uh, in two places in particular where we see this. In chapter 10... Verse 25, once Saul is publicly proclaimed as king, we read, Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And thus we have here Samuel bringing the authoritative word of God regarding the institution of the kingship to the people, writing it in a book, laying it up before the Lord, where it would have taken its place alongside the books of Moses. 
as a revelation of God for how the kingship should be administered in Israel. God is not leaving the king to find out on his own. He's giving him the light of his guidance and his truth to show him the way to rule his people faithfully. And then the second place is during Samuel's farewell address in chapter 12. And we've, we've seen these verses before, but look at chapter 12, verse 20 again. And Samuel said to the people, when they came to this realization, they'd made a great mistake. Do not be afraid, for you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel here is God's mouthpiece to the people. And it's as though he's saying this, yes, you have made a big mistake. You have made a terrible mistake. But the good life is still right here for you to take hold of. The good life is still held out to you. It's still a possibility for you if you will obey the voice of the Lord. Obey Him now and experience the blessing that He still intends to give to you. I think one of the greatest hindrances to obedience in our own lives is the problem of unresolved guilt. We can have a tendency to let our minds wander in this direction. I've sinned against the Lord. I don't have the guilt of that resolved and thus I assume God wants nothing more to do with me. And if God wants nothing more to do with me, what use is it me trying to pursue Him, trying to obey Him, trying to glorify Him? What use is all that? He doesn't want me. He doesn't accept me. And if that's the case, if you always have this cloud of guilt that comes over you when you think of God, what are you going to do? You're going to put God out of your mind much as possible. You're going to run from Him, and you're going to hide from Him, and you're going to try to, to find some kind of solace in the empty things of this world. And that's a pattern that sin can lead us into. So how do we address that issue of unresolved guilt so that we may know the Word of God as it comes to us as a word intended to bless us, intended for our good, a word that summons us to obedience and faith. How do we address that? Is it by downplaying our guilt? Is it by saying, you know, maybe my sin wasn't as bad as I really think it is? Maybe it's not even a sin at all. Maybe I can, uh, I can just soothe my conscience by changing up my value system. And, and here comes modern psychology to tell us that's all we need to do is adjust our value system so that our consciences no longer accuse us. And then we'll be okay. No, you can't resolve guilt that way. If you do that, you are only searing and hardening your conscience more and more toward God. Putting more and more distance between yourself and Him. That is not the pathway to peace. What to do with unresolved guilt is to look at it squarely. And to see it in all its horror and to recognize, 
I don't even know the half of how horrifying this is in reality. God disapproves of my sin far more than I do. Look at it squarely. And then look at the cross. And believe that the Son of God gave His life for you. That His death is fully sufficient to pay for every last one of your sins. As Luther said, Christ didn't die for imaginary sins. He didn't die for the sins we wish we would have committed. He died for the ones we did commit. And if we take this to the cross and recognize again that our guilt has been put away, we will see that the idea that God wants nothing more to do with us is a lie that is from the pit of hell. It is a lie to silence as we look again to the cross and return to God and to know He accepts us, to know that He wants us, to know that He invites us to obey Him with joy, to know that His Word goes forth to us even in the wake of failure. One of the surest signs that God loves you is that you are hearing this Word proclaimed to you today, that God is speaking His Word to you. He has not cut you off. So receive it as a word of God's grace and feel the confidence to pursue the Lord again. God's love for His children is demonstrated through His providence in ordering all things for their good and His glory through the gift of His Spirit that indwells us, through the gift of His Word that summons us to obedience. But ultimately, the love of God for us is demonstrated through His Son. This is a story, of course, that long predates Jesus of Nazareth. But it is a story that nevertheless points to Him. It points to Him in a very subtle way, but very, very uh, deep way as well. When the king of the Ammonites, Nahash, laid, city to the, the, uh, laid siege to the city of Jabesh-Gilead, I think the author is inviting us to make a connection. Now, as English speakers, we don't naturally make that connection, but I'm going to tell you how to make it now. Do you know what Nahash means in Hebrew? It means serpent. Is it an accident that Saul's first victory is over King Serpent? Is it just a coincidence? And you might say that it is, but there are other examples in the books of First and Second Samuel where names really seem to mean something. And for example, if you look ahead to First Samuel 25, you'll see a character named Nabal, and his name means fool, and he sure lives up to it. And so when we're confronted with a king, a pagan king who is as brutal as Nahash of the Ammonites, and if we are speaking Hebrew, we can see his name is Serpent. The author is inviting us to think back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God had pronounced judgment on the serpent who had tempted Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree and had plunged humanity into sin and death and had seized dominion over this world from humanity. And God declared a word of judgment to that serpent that the seed of the woman would one day come and crush the head of this serpent. And then we read a story in 1 Samuel of a spirit-empowered man who crushes a serpent in battle 
and then enters into his kingdom to reign. Does that sound familiar? Jesus of Nazareth was a man anointed by God, empowered by the Spirit, who was driven out to the wilderness where the serpent threw everything he had at him. And Jesus emerged victorious. And then he went to the cross, crushing the head of the serpent who accuses the brethren, taking away his power of accusation, was raised from the dead, has ascended into heaven, is now seated at the right hand of God where he has entered into his kingdom as he reigns. If you are in Christ, I want you to rejoice today that nothing, not even your own failures, will deter God from pursuing your good and His glory in you because of Christ. These are the ways of our God, and they are wonderful. We're going to come now to the table And we're going to eat and drink in remembrance of Christ crucified for us. If you're not a believer today, nothing I have said applies to you. Nothing. Because there are no promises that are held out to you. As Jonathan Edwards made clear in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the only thing that keeps you from dropping to hell at this very moment is the mere pleasure of God that He does not owe to you a bit. So don't delay another moment. If you are not in Christ, you're not a believer, we, we ask you to abstain today, but we want you to come to Christ. We want you to know the invitation to believe in Him is open to you today to cast your sins upon Him, to seek His forgiveness, and to know the joy of every promise that's been declared to you today. Come to Christ. Come and and speak to your neighbor or one of the pastors about trusting in Christ and being baptized to declare your faith in Him. If you're not a believer, then please abstain, but do come to Christ today. If you are a believer you are baptized and member of a good standing uh, in good standing with a, a a church. Then we invite you to come with us. And the way we will come this morning is uh, by each row by row, starting with the front. Come from the outside and come across the front and just grab one stack of cups. The juice is on top, the bread is on bottom, and then return to the inside of your row. If you're in the overflow area. We'll have a pastor over here so you can go row by row starting at the front uh, to go and receive communion there. And so let's take a moment of silence while we prepare to serve the table. Would you bow? And uh, we'll take a moment of silence before we come and receive the bread and the cup.